before we begin, we'd like to ask a favor. If you could take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, we'd really appreciate it. We're told it helps the show find new listeners. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the BLB podcast. This is the first episode of season two. In this season, we're going to invite even more writers to read from their work, discuss the short story form, their writing process, how they got published and what they're reading. The BLB podcast is a project from Brick Lane Bookshop. I'm Kate Ellis and this is my co-host Peter J. Coles. Hello. Today we are extremely excited to be talking to Manuel Munoz about his collection, The Consequences, published by Indigo Press and of course available to buy from the Brick Lane Bookshop. Keep listening for a discount code. Um, today we're recording on Zoom from London and Tucson, Arizona. So please excuse any wobbles in our audio or crackles across the ocean. Manuel Munoz is the author of the novel What You See in the Dark and the short story collection Zigzagger and The Faith Healer of Olive Avenue, which was shortlisted for the Franco Connor International Short Story Award. He is the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts and the New York Foundation for the Arts. He has been recognised with a Whiting Writers Award, three O. Henry Awards, and an appearance in Best American Short Stories. His new collection, The Consequences, is out now with Indigo Press. Hello, Manuel. A very warm welcome from us at the BOB Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And you're going to begin today's show with a reading. I'd like to read a little bit from the opening to the second story in the collection. It's called The Happiest Girl in the Whole USA. Timoteo really is nothing special, shorter than me and rounder, and hardly even a smile to break the dark moon of his face. I say no one special because it is still, after all these years, just me and him. No one special because I'm no different from any of the women who line up at the town bank ready to exchange my saved collection of coins for a wad of sweaty bills. It takes money to get a man back from the border, more money than most might think. Some of us have rings on our fingers and some of us don't, but we all know what it means to watch the calendar turn to the last of the month. We know what some of the farmers do on final Fridays, and we know what to do on Saturday mornings. The farmers put their dusty hands on a phone receiver and very calmly place a call to the migra. Then the men in the green uniforms arrive at the rows of whatever crops are in season, grapes or peaches or plums, and round up the men into vans. No one ends up paid for the week's labor and everyone gets a standard booking in either Visalia or Fresno before being hustled back onto the vehicles. By nighttime, the vans reach Bakersfield and start the slow ascent into the mountains. They will head through Los Angeles, where all our men know it's easy to get lost, but expensive to live. Then on to San Diego, where it's just expensive to live. Finally, they'll reach the border itself in Tijuana, where the van doors open to let all the men out so they can start over again. The bank teller counts out the bills as quickly as she can. She is a very pretty white girl who always wears skirts, her hair pulled up with simple barrettes. 
She knows the bus from Fresno stops once a week in our town now, Saturday mid-afternoon in front of the barber shop, as if the whole drama of deportation and return was a big plan between the Migra and the charter companies. She hurries, and though she never says much of a pleasant word to any of us, I think it is because she doesn't want us to miss the only bus going out of town, the only way to get our men back. I often wonder about the history of her good luck. I don't always know what to think of the fact that she doesn't have a ring on her finger, if it is a good or a bad thing. It's always the same when I board the bus. It's already half full, mostly women from Fresno and the little towns just south of it, like Fowler and Selma. I get a seat alone and the bus moves on to Goshen, then to Larry and Delano, each woman who boards more weary than the last. They're all like me, or at least they look like me. I don't know their histories. I don't know if they came from South Texas like I did, were taken from school in the third grade to work in the fields like me. I was resentful of my parents for giving me the life of a dumb mule, and I left them almost to the minute of my 18th birthday with only a scrap of paper with their address and phone number that I never ended up using. I walk around with a lot of pride because I did that, because I proved that I could support myself in a hard world. I did all right for myself for a while. Then I fell in love. Thank you so much. That was, that was wonderful. I'm going to begin by uh, just saying that The Consequences, which that story is from, is a fantastic collection. Um, most of the stories are set in Fresno, California, near the border with Mexico in the 70s and 80s. Um, your work, your stories have been described by Colin Barrett as melancholy, assured and unforgettable. Like a porch light at midnight, they strike a circle of stark dreamlike clarity around their characters, even as the darkness gathers in. And I, I agree, like they're so moving and profound and all of them create vivid worlds and characters. Um, and I got the sense from reading that you cared deeply about all of your characters and perhaps that's why I did too. Um, <laughs> um, could, would you mind beginning by um, describing the collection for our listeners in your own words? Uh, well, as you just said, there are stories that are set in Fresno, I'm very interested in place, um, particularly the time of the 1970s and 1980s. This was before a, a major immigration reform act happened in 1986, which um, was one of the many, many steps since then where the political situation between uh, um, the US and Mexican nationals who would come over uh, to provide a lot of the agricultural labor uh, for places like California, Central Valley, but also Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, all across the United States, really, um, started to change the lives of, of many people who were under um, the threat, constant threat of deportation. I grew up that way. I'm 50 years old. So I was a child as a teenager when my, when my father who's Mexican born was, would sometimes not come home from his work in the fields. And we knew what the story was. Uh, it, it was just a matter of waiting for him to come back. As, as I've gotten older, those stories of survival 
of uh, how my parents handled those those situations, um, how other families in the neighborhood handled those situations, um, have really become a, a rich source of of my fiction, um, and helped me uh, get a better understanding of of why I I privilege pra- a place so much as I do with the valley. Uh, it's great to hear you talk about it like that, and it it comes across that I mean I read in the research for this, that you grew up in the area and it's from your experience, but it feels every character's take on it from different perspectives is very kind of real and emotional. And yeah, I was always on their side. It felt like you were too. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I think about um, my first book, which came out in 2003, I was 31 years old, and some of those stories that I was writing as as a 20-something were very much about a queer male experience in a rural place like the one where I grew up. But uh, as I began to write more and think more expansively of what I wanted my fiction to do, it really became an invitation and a challenge to myself to think about point of view, who's at the center of stories, um, and think much more widely about the kinds of experiences uh, that a that a story can can showcase for us. And so, I'm hoping with this collection, there's a there's a wide range of experiences of characters of different ages, um, um, men, women, married, not married, um, and what that means in terms of how they all determine their own place in the valley. Um, something that I picked up on while reading the stories was that. Lots of them explore intergenerational relationships, which I, I found quite fascinating. Often there are tensions between your protagonists and their parents or their children, the children and parents. Was this a deliberate theme that you were looking for or was it something you could talk more about? Yeah, deliberate is, is a really strange word for me because it, there's, I'm always at a constant battle between when I start a story of where is this actually coming from? <laughs> and I think, uh, I, I wish that I could say, I sit down and maybe choose between directions, but I have my obsessions. <laughs> I, I think that the, the conflicts that I have, I have seen in my own life between um, people of my generation who grew up in, in a rural place and have long wanted to leave it, but are pulled back by the responsibilities of family and how deep the roots can go. Um, It's sort of an unconscious place where I go in in search of story conflict and I find it almost without looking. Um, So whether it's deliberate or not, um, I, I think I would only use that word if I were actually had a choice between one or two stories and I can never work on more than one thing at a time. Um, but they they seem to come, and the conflict will come usually with um, with 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 someone looking at another circumstance and how they have chosen how it, someone who's in an older generation did their you know made their choices made their paths, and that becomes a I think a very good sense of or, or a good source of drama and conflict. You just have this wonderful sense that. There is so much love between the parents, but so much sort of anger and frustration as well at the same time. Um, and it just it, it really speaks to me <laughs> having grown up in not not a, totally not a similar circumstance, but that sort of 
uh, sort of loving tension that you have with your with your uh, with your family. It, it, you just pictured it so, yeah, elegantly. I think that it, you you don't hate the parents at the end, but you don't sort of love them, and you don't hate the protagonist. You don't love them. It's sort of this realness i think that you get through that comes through so clearly in your work no thank you for that and i'll you know i'll just say aren't we all just a cauldron of emotions of <laughs> conflicting of emotions and and it really thrills me to hear you say that because one of the things that i that has been a constant worry for me as a writer in the u.s given who i write about and the area that i write about which isn't often considered in the greater fabric of of our literature um, is that they are recognizable stories they are in the end family stories i i i see those dynamics in in all sorts of fiction whether it's set in new york um, or it's set in connecticut um, among the wealthy um, you know, i i see all of those things um, and those dynamics in operation and they certainly um, play out in in my own, so I'm I'm really glad that that I can hear another reader uh, see it um, and hear it and feel it. So I thank you. I thank you for that. So you mentioned that that you you see those relations in other stories, but do you think there's anything particular or um, specific about the sort of situation that you were writing about between families in terms of like you know the, the migrant worker situation and this desperate need for to gain wealth in this way or, or you know support a family in this way well you know last night i was watching um a film called l'enfant the child by the dardenne brothers and I've, I've seen a number of their films and have seen the you know their their interest um in lives that you don't often see depicted um and what's what's wonderful about seeing narratives like that for me is that um, I know sometimes people think uh, or or say about my stories that they're very despairing or they're very, very bleak. Um, but to me, that it's another way of saying real. These are quite real circumstances which people must deal with on a daily basis. And sometimes when a when a family um, doesn't have a whole lot of resources or a whole lot of ways to get ahead these spoken and unspoken expectations of how children behave or even how an extended family is going to operate again to me is a very very rich source of story drama conflict uh, who gets to make those decisions sometimes um they are silent is silent acquiescence this is the way it's going to be uh sometimes someone stands up and says this is not what i want i want my own life i want my independence um or in other circumstances um uh, people start to see that they need to look out for uh, for others and just provide a moment of generosity uh, because life is is so hard um you you, you never know what you're going to get um when you're faced with with real day-to-day -day, um, existence and survival, I think. Um, I think that's a very long way of answering that question, but um, I, I hope, I, hope I, I got to the heart of it. Yeah, we like long answers, <laughs> definitely. The BOB podcast is brought to you by Brick Lane Bookshop. As a thank you for listening to us talk about short stories, we're offering all listeners a 10% discount. 
Just use the code BLBPOD, that's B-L-B-P-O-D, for a 10% discount of any purchase at bricklanebookshop.org. Something that I noticed rereading some of the stories was that characters crop up across stories. And so not only are we seeing their situation from their point of view or from a close relative's point of view, but also from someone across a car park or someone that they see across the street. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about how you construct that kind of thing, whether it's whether you have a map of how everyone's connected to start with, or do they just crop up where is appropriate as you're writing? Oh, no, they absolutely crop up. Um, but I've seen uh, many instances of it in um, Edward P. Jones. I mention him quite often. Uh, he, he writes of Washington, D.C., uh, urban life, city life, um, and across two collections of his of his stories, you see um, sometimes mirror stories, the same character several years in advance. Other times, a story that had been told about a character turns out to be the thread of something else. Um, Joan Silver is another another uh, U.S. writer who I admire very, very greatly. Um, her, her 2004 book, Ideas of Heaven, A Ring of Stories, a minor character in one story becomes the major character of the next. And that's how she's able to get from 1980s New York to 1500s Italy to 1900s China. I just find it extraordinary. Um, so those, those kinds of moves in short story collections are inspired me when I was uh, struggling to write stories, not just for this collection, but you know, even uh, a decade ago when I was working on a collection called The Faith Healer of Olive Avenue, I was really embracing what it meant for me to write about my neighborhood, how small it was, how the, the small towns, everything I had, I had ever thought about in terms of the limit of a rural town, uh, I wanted to upend. As small as a place is, it could contain multitudes of stories. And it was my job to really pay attention to each and every character who popped up. One of the practices that came for me in the drafting of this book was every time I finished a draft of a story, I would write a little list to myself of anybody who popped up, whether, you know, again, as you said, if it's somebody who might be across the street. So it, I wasn't exactly mapping, but I was giving myself an opportunity to meditate on the potential that that minor person, however much of a little glimpse we got of them, could hold a story. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm hoping that readers will see in the title story, there is a voice on the phone who, as you know, becomes, who carries the, the story that, that finishes this book. Um, and that's what came out of that process, I think. Yeah, I found um, the character Teddy Teo, like his appearance in the final story particularly moving because you see his life from his sister's point of view as opposed to his sort of sometime lover's point of view and to see how important he was to her as well as what happened in the previous it was just it really got to me I found I found it kind of upsetting to sort of see him from different angles that's uh, yeah very very effective <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you again. Thank you for that. And but as we were saying earlier to each other about what we recognize in each other, I think sometimes 
or I know one of the discoveries I needed to make for myself is however I might be feeling about who I am in the world, there's someone within my orbit who sees me in a different way and loves me in a different way that I might even love myself. And those, I think that's a powerful way to think about the characters that we create on the page. Um, switch the point of view and, and see what happens. Somebody who might be, um, you know, very generous in, in one story might end up being not in another. And I have to give myself license to, to do that a little bit more as I, as I continue to write. So the two stories that we're sort of discussing are the consequences and what kind of fool am I? So did, did you write the consequences first and as a consequence, the sister story came out? Is that what happened? That is exactly what happened. Uh, the consequences came first and fairly early in, in this collection, I wanna say it was maybe the fourth story I had finished. Um, and I, I will give a nod to my agent because this book took 11, it took nine years to write and 11 years between books. And he was very patient with me for the most part, but he was telling me to get a move on. And, and he told me as I was getting closer and closer to completing this book, he said, listen, I, I won't send out stories until you're done with this book. <laughs> and that, that challenge um, or that closing of the door I, I said, all right, just just focus. You know you're not going to send the story out, so make it be as long as you need it to be. And it went on for a while. It, it's the longest story in the collection by a long shot. But in as I, I was describing that, that process to you, when Bea showed up as a character and I knew uh, where she was going to take me as a as the writer um i just didn't let some of the usual parameters get in the way there was even i hate to say this because if my agent hears that he might come back and say what <laughs> uh, there was even that tiny hint that it's that the story felt so big that it could get into a novel but i would not dare admit that <laughs> <laughs> now it's published it's a story because <laughs> publishers always want a novel they always yeah. want a novel but i i just really love the the the, the gem-like construction of stories and and what they can bring so um yeah it was the last one the last one and when i got to the end i won't give away for readers other kinds of connections that are made up but it seemed to have come of, of a piece it, it, I knew the book and I knew the world and I knew this is the closing, not just of the story, but of the entire book. Mm -hmm. I, it's interesting that you say that it could have transformed into a novel. We had a guest on the last series, Keith Ridge, Ridgeway, who wrote what he was very definite was a novel, but in structure and style, it was kind of similar to yours. It, was, it had individual stories and characters showed up on the peripheries. And I wondered if you could talk about why it's a short story collection and not a novel? Well, I mean, a, a novel would have to contain contain one kind of clear arc. And I would say, I'd argue that it would, it would need to have a central character. It's happened a couple of times. Uh, I know one of my former professors, when they were reading uh, Faith Healer, uh, the book from 2007, came across one of the stories and she had never seen it before. 
And she said, Manuel, if you had been in my class, I would have said that's that's a novel. I think there's something about big family dynamics or potential for them to be unearthed in new ways is what lends itself. I, I think when I when I when I see a character like Bea, um her ending here it suits a short story because there's there's something about the instantaneous decision that she makes at the end. Whereas in a novel, I'm not sure if that's what I would do. Also, where would she end up? Um, we as readers know her entire trajectory across two stories, but a story, that story ends her in a very particular place. And I would have to rethink that if that were um, a much bigger, a much bigger novel. Unless I were willing to do a lot of things with um, time and flashback and, but I don't know, I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a fuddy-duddy when it comes to, you know, linear storytelling. I want a beginning and I want an end. Um, so that's, I think that's where I would, I would, I'm just glad I didn't. Who, and who knows, who knows, it might turn into another story. There's nothing that's stopping me from writing about her again. I mean, we're seeing lots of writers do that with, with different characters. Um, Andrew Sean Greer and Elizabeth Strout um, having characters reappear in new narratives. I mean, uh, you leave it at a point where she has just kind of made the decision to shift her life and to leave her old life behind, um, which, you know, I'm curious. I'd read on for sure. <laughs> but, but it also speaks to a theme in a lot of your stories that, most characters kind of accept their circumstances and feel kind of constrained or, or sort of trapped by their communities or their families. I wonder if you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that theme in your work. Yeah, you know, when I was in, in graduate school and, and, and thinking and talking a lot about character, and I teach also here at the University of Arizona, so these conversations are always in my midst with my students. Um, uh, I know that most of the characters that I deal with, that some of their realizations are about the, their circumstances. It's, it's one thing to sort of, as we move through our lives and see what we have in front of us, uh, can sometimes be stopped cold by you know, seeing the limit of the horizon. Um, and that to me, again, is drama or conflicts or realization, or I hate to use the word, but epiphany, that can be that that can be a, a, a source, a spark for a short story. I, I had to learn to realize that that was something that I could put in, in my work. Again, this goes back to living in a rural place, a neglected place, a place that isn't supposed to have story. Um, but then realizing that the humanity of um, everyone that I grew up around you know, requires me to think of them, uh, to think of us as, as having you know, these, these light bulb moments, however terrible or fraught they might be in terms of the limits of our circumstances. So, um, you know, again, I think that's come over you know, so many years of, of embracing where I come from and and, and seeing the possibilities of, of, um, of the lives that I've seen, that I see around me. Something that I also 
was very fascinated by it was this concept that comes at the end of, you know, I can't speak Spanish. Is it presumido? Presumido? Mm -hmm. Presumido. Presumido mm -hmm. and susto. But sort of two stories that sort of are different, but uh, their themes sort of came together for me. And there's this great line that really hit me at the end of pres presumido. Um, if he wanted to, another beer, he would have to go back inside. He sat in the empty kitchen chair to gather himself for a few minutes because it would be hard to be surrounded by so much wrong without finally having to say something about it. And and then the next story, Sisto, is about uh, uh, an old man dying and the, the community having to do something about it. And I'm wondering whether this collection is your attempt to do something about it. Is it your saying, I'm not just going to not do something about it. I'm, I'm not going to see these terrible things and not write about them. I'm going to write about them. Is that what you're doing with this collection? I, yeah, I'd like to say that that's, that that's true. Um, I didn't think that I would be at 50 years old still having a conversation about the place where I grew up. I, I had a sense about 15 years ago that the dynamics of what we think of as story or viable stories or stories we want to listen to was really changing, at least in the U.S. Um, and it turned out to not be the case. The, the forward movement is always very halting. Um, and part of the reason I think it took me so long to complete this collection was I thought, look, you've, you've, you're hearing all the radio signals that nobody truly cares about this place or uh, the community of which you write about, however big we are. Um, so why keep doing it? I, I, that, that's a tough question. And that was a tough question that I, I kept asking myself in my darkest, darkest hours. Um, and I guess what kept moving me forward was a sense that every story told is, is an accomplishment, it's an embrace, it is, um, it, is, it is one more little bit of light. Um, and that's all it needs to be. It doesn't need to do a whole lot more than that. It's going to contribute in some way. Um, I've never, a friend of mine who, who teaches at UCLA said to me, listen, you just have to get comfortable with the idea that your stories and what you write about will find its audience you know, years from now, which is a little frustrating. But on the other hand, um, it, you know, that I, if, I, if I embrace that, I could just get, get rid of that doubt and just keep writing and saying, all right, don't think about um, any sense that this is going to change anytime soon, but contribute to the change that might come. And the only way to do that is by keep, is by, you know, maintaining the stories and writing the stories and putting them out there um, and, and not being worried about whether they'll be recognized in their own time. Um, and I don't mean recognized in terms of uh, greatness or majesty or anything of that. It's just, just being seen, just being seen and considered. Because um, that's still a, a challenge for writers like me and writers like who come from my communities um, in the U.S. I hope this finds loads of readers because it's it's so good and so it's so important 
that I've never read a book like this before about the communities that you write about. So I think it's like any great book, it, it gets you into the minds of the characters and it makes you care. So it's, yeah, you've, I think you've succeeded and I hope you continue. <laughs> um, the, I wanted to ask you about writing about gay characters in the seventies and eighties and many of the characters that you write about are struggling with their sexuality kind of in their own heads, but also because the communities around them are not okay with them being gay. So they run away or they hide. Um, and I'm hopeful that the situation has changed. It, is, it has changed a lot since the seventies and eighties, but it's still obviously, you know, the stuff going on in the U S now that says it's still a big problem. Right. And it's upsetting and difficult. I, I wondered if you would mind talking about how much you think it's changed and how far there is still to go. There's a long way to go. Uh, yes, there's, there, there has been, um, much change, but sometimes, I, I mean, my family still lives in the Valley. So I return to the Fresno area quite a lot. Um, and I live in, in Tucson, which is a, what we call a blue city in the blue red divide in terms of progressive, um, you know, um, uh, divisions and so forth. Um, but when I go to Fresno, when I go to the Valley, I do sense uh, a feeling of stepping back in time a little bit. Um, the urge to leave, uh, to get away into a place of safety or a place where you feel you don't have to be on such guard in terms of what you do with your own body, with uh, your voice, how you carry yourself, um, all the things that I know that when I lived in New York, I never once thought about. Uh, those are um, those are still very apparent. Um, in some ways, I, I have to just sadly say, it isn't difficult for me to write characters in the 70s and 80s um, because I just I just recognize that 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 tension, um, that feeling of, of, of being found out. Um, I, 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 I can tell the story here, I'll keep it very brief, but when I first moved to Tucson in 2008, I, I went out on a date with a, um, uh, a guy who had just left his marriage. He was in his mid thirties. He had come out, um, but he wasn't comfortable being in the public eye and, in the restaurant, his 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 hands were shaking as he held the fork in life, and I thought, oh, this is just nervousness about a, a date. But he said, no, I'm just afraid someone is going to see me, and that seemed like such a, a a relic of some kind. I said, what what era am I in? But on the other hand, I had to step back and and have empathy for or how he was feeling and how he perceived himself in the city, in the place that he, he was born and raised in. And, um, you know, so experiences like that, you know, have, have taught me quite a bit about not being so quick to, um, you know, to declare a complete liberation. You know, those, those stories of what it means to be in the closet um, I don't, I hope that I'm not reinforcing the closet, but I want to, you know, really uh, underscore how powerful the closet really is and what, you know, what, what, um, 
you know, what a, what a, a, a tremendous and terrible force it is on the lives of those of us who live in places like like the valley and it's you know i mean that's that's true of think of people i knew who grew up in the midwest uh who grew up in any rural town that tension is always always there yeah it is i i, I don't think it's reinforcing the closet it's almost it almost serves as a reminder like you know i live in london it's it's, it's easy to forget here too that being gay is an issue but back in the 90s in suburbia it definitely was and there's still people now that are scared. It's, you know, it's, I think it's, um, you write very eloquently about how people think about it. So it's, yeah, I think it's valuable. Yeah. And I'll just, you know, I'll add, you know, this in the early aughts, I remember, um, you know, speaking to a group of my peers, you know, my, my age group, we were writing some of these stories and we were having this discussion about, you know, why, why tell the coming out story? I had read some article somewhere where a writer, you know, I forget who it was, made some kind of declaration of like, we just don't need the closet stories anymore. You need to start telling the stories of liberation. And I was just a little dumbfounded by that because I thought you can't ignore that there are people who are living in places where that is not easily done. And as a proponent of, of, of someone who feels, uh, who feels that every story is important and needs to be told, even those, those, those stories, which some might feel it's like, I've heard this before. I've heard this pain before. I don't want to hear the pain anymore. Um, but they're still vitally, vitally important to me. Yeah, it's just it's just so interesting to hear you express it that way and and this idea that there maybe was a time 10 10 15 years ago when we did think that we were moving we could move away from these stories but how insane that feels now that we're right back here again and telling the same stories again because we have to because it's important when you know because we people need to hear them again so that we can maybe not stop telling these stories one day or yeah and it's also desperately sad. I think something that I found when reading your book as well was that I did not pick up that it was set in the 70s and 80s for quite a long time. It felt very contemporary. It was only when I realized that maybe there weren't many mobile phones and no computers around. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, maybe this is not set when I think it is. And and then it clicked and I was just like, that's such a indictment, I think, of the situation we're in. But I could think that this was a contemporary it was it was a contemporary novel. Um, I think the situation, and maybe you don't hear as much, but the situation in England is also fraught and horrible and weird at the moment as well. And we're hoping for brighter things in the future. I hope I hope things get better soon. Um, but just to move on from that slightly, um, you've mentioned a couple of times that the consequences took you nine years to write. Um and you said that it was, I think in one interview, you said that it was, uh, it was very difficult to write. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about your experience of getting over that difficulty for our potential writers out there. How did you overcome your sort of your, your, your struggles in terms of getting this book finished and out there in the world? Well, I persisted. And what I mean by that is, I, I know it's, it's, it's um, before I answer, I just want to share a moment from my graduate school days 
where I was really struggling to produce and I was sitting in the office of my advisor and she was giving me the big pep talk. And I remember thinking, because I looked up on her wall and she had a certificate for uh, a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. And I just kept thinking to myself, this is so easy for you to say, because you've been validated, you've been published and I'm still struggling, I'm still starting. Um, but I, I let go of the idea that a book needed to be the end product. I was just struggling so much. And I said, listen, do you really love the story? Just if it's too overwhelming to think of what a collection is, just honor the form and just write this, a story. If it comes in a book later, great. If it doesn't, no matter. Um, you just need to, to persist and keep writing a story. Um, I, I like telling this story a lot because, and this is why I gave you that anecdote earlier, um, because it's publishing related. Uh, Susto had come out in Freeman's journal and it's, it's translated into Italian by a house called Edizioni Black Coffee. And the editor there, when she picked up the issue where Susto was in, reads the issue in its entirety and was uh, maybe taken aback a bit by Susto because she had never heard of me. So she reaches out to John Freeman, who's the editor of, of the journal, and says, who is this guy? How do I get in touch with his agent? And gets in touch with Stuart, my, Stuart Bernstein, my agent, and praises the story um, and asks in kind of an exasperated way, how come I've never heard of this guy? And I'm like, well, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's just been a tough, it's been a tough haul for me for a long time. Um, and then she said, uh, we'd like to, we'd like to purchase the, or contract the collection. And Stuart said, what, what collection? There's no collection. He's just working on stories. When this got back to me, I, I found it one very funny, but then on the second, you know, just when I really reflected on it, I thought, okay, this is, as I call it, la divina providencia, you know, is, is saying something to you about get to work. Someone out there is seeing something that you're not. Someone out there is having a, more faith in you than you're not having in yourself. And um, so I went, I started to read, reread the stories that I had with more intention and gave myself the courage to think about it as a book. Um, that editor's name is uh, Sara Reggiani. I hope I'm saying that correctly, but I, I've never met her in person. I hope I do. She's, she's really the one that broke me out of that terrible well of doubt um, just by sending that note. Um, it's a reader. I mean, I know she's an editor, but she's a reader. And her response was just so, it's in my heart. And I just, uh, I just thank her so much for that. Thank you for sharing that. That's such a wonderful, heartening story. Um, it's, uh, that editor is like one of the other characters writing in your stories, seeing the character across the street and understands how loved they are. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> maybe that's a cheesy comment, but it's, you know, it's like you needed, you needed someone else to show you that your work was worth persisting with. Yeah. Um, I think most writers understand that feeling. So there's, uh, there's a couple of final questions. Um, you're, you're a creative writing tutor and you've, you've written is it four books now. Uh, 
I, I wondered if if there was a piece of advice that you, age 50, would like to give your 20 or 25-year-old self about writing life or anything, what would you say to him? I would say to him, read more. You need to read more. Um, particularly read, uh, you know, knowing that you're going to turn to the short story in the way that you have to read uh, collected works. Because one of the great joys I have is, is um, looking at either a selected or a collected, but collected's are really the, the, where it's at, I think. Watching a writer transform over time, uh, try new things, slip a little bit, um, uh, experiment, uh, but, or sometimes just maintain their same voice somehow mysteriously. I, I wish I could have, I touched all of those books much, much sooner, um, than I did. Um, and also to read poetry much earlier than I did. I think I was fixated too much on, on novels and, and not that novels are a terrible thing. They're really fantastic, but where I have gotten my sustenance in terms of language and form have, have been the short story writers and have been the poets. Um, they're the ones who train me to, you know, to think about how, as I said earlier, gem-like stories can really be. That's the advice that I would give to myself. It's the advice that I give to my students even now. I hate usually ask this question, but I'm going to slip in and ask it because it just seems so perfect. But we wanted to ask, we always ask our authors, who, um, what are you reading at the moment? But more importantly, because I just want to hear what your answer to this is, are there any writers and particular books that you always return to? Oh, who am I reading at the moment? Um, I just finished Angie Cruz's novel, um, uh, how, to, how Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. Um, I have Carl Phillips' uh, selected poems, Then the War. Uh, he's, he's, his book has returned me to starting my day with a poem, a little meditation. I used to do that in the early aughts on a daily basis, and I just stopped doing it. But there's something about his really kind of unique and idiosyncratic syntax that keeps my attention and it's a really great way to um to keep my focus um and what do i return to uh joan silver as i said earlier edward p jones but jo joan silver in particular because um I, I just remember when i when i read ideas of heaven uh, i remember almost every instance where i i was I was sitting uh, in a restaurant, I was on a plane, I was in Fresno um, when I was finishing the book. Um, Ideas of Heaven was the year in which the 2004, uh, the National Book Awards, was the first and so far only time when all five nominees, all five finalists were women. And it caused an uproar. I have no idea why, but well, I do have an idea why, uh, but um, there was such dismissiveness of of these of these writers that I went out and bought all five of the books, and read them for myself. Um, and I was astounded by them. They were they were really fantastic. It was Christine Scutt's Florida, K. 
Kate Walbert's, um, uh, I forget, well, I'm going to come up with the name of the title in a minute. Um, Sarah, Sarah Shulin Bynum's um, Madeline is Sleeping, um, Joan's book, and Lily Tuck, who won the news from Paraguay. Um, oh, Kate Walbert, Our Kind, that's what it was. They were wonderful, wonderful, wonderful books. Um, but Joan Silvers was the one that stuck out. And I thought, oh, if I, if I had been on the committee, I know who I would have awarded it to. Uh, I just absolutely adore her. Also, because at, at, a, at a conference panel one time, one of the questions was, what's your favorite story? She happened to be in the audience and I had to say, listen, I'm not saying this because Joan Silver is sitting there, but it is absolutely true that her story, The High Road, is very important to me. And, um, you know, I read it as it was published in Ideas of Heaven. I went back to the Plowshares, a literary journal where it was first published to see what she had done because it was revised. I just learned a lot from, I keep learning a lot from reading that story. It's beautiful, and I hope people will seek it out. I'm a great admirer of Joan Silver. Thank you for sharing. That's, there's so many writers I need to read. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I've, yeah, I've, I've never heard, I don't think I've heard of Joan Silver, so I'm, I'm excited to read that. I'm definitely going to hunt that story out. It's in Plowshares, you said the original, but then the new it would, the original. I, I believe it was it was in Plowshares. I'm almost certain it was, uh, but it was it was in a different form, and it was a, a a good way for me to just think how does how does somebody revise a story? Because very often we just see it in the book, and we don't go into the journal where a, a writer might have published something six years before to see what changes you know the the press editor has asked of the story or how they themselves have moved it within the shape it has within the book. Uh, those are good lessons, I think. Um, probably an assignment I'm going to start making my students do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a good one. Um, all that remains to be said is thank you so much for joining us today and being so generous with your thoughts and your recommendations and so honest and i am pretty certain that this podcast and people listening to you will get a serious amount of sustenance from it in their writing lives so thank you you made that you made our return to series two whatever this is just feel warm and lovely and i've i've had such a good time talking it's been amazing and uh we wish you all the best of luck for your next thing and you have two Two brand new fans in the UK for sure. And I'm yeah. sure we'll follow for sure. And I can't wait to read what you're going to write next. Are you writing something else at the moment? I am that... currently stuck. I have been okay. I've been I've been looking at a story since June and it hasn't it isn't coming. It's sort okay. of coming, but again, those little meditative practices, you know, read some poems, look at other things mm. and see if it'll come. But I, I thank you for inviting me and taking such an interest. You know, here we are half away around the world from each other and i'm sending you all the um all the thanks i can all the gracias i can from the desert so <laughs> thank you so much thanks for listening to the bob podcast please remember to rate and review us we'd love to hear what you think of the show you can get in touch on social media via at bricklane books or email us at inquiries at bricklanebookshop.org the music as ever is by andrew everett Andrew is also a bookseller at Brick Lane Bookshop and we'd like to thank him for allowing us to use a section of his beautiful track Can't Have Everything for the show. 
If you like his music as much as we do, you can find more on andreweverett.bandcamp.com. <laughs>